seminal sax man Charlie Parker put it like this. Don't play the saxophone, let it play you. He is one of Atlanta-based saxophonist David Sanchez's major musical influences. But while Sanchez took notes from legends like Parker and Sonny Rollins, Dexter Gordon and John Coltrane, he struck a chord with audiences with his own music. Sanchez is a Grammy and Latin Grammy award-winning musician. He's artist-in-residence in the Jazz Studies program at Georgia State University School of Music. And this summer, he's released a new album called Carib. You're listening to the opening track, Morning Mist. And David Sanchez, off the road for a little bit anyway, joining us in the studio. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Virginia, for having me here. It's indeed a pleasure. A little bit of origin stuff, though. You're originally from Puerto Rico, which is where you got into music. Even though you're now renowned for your horn work, it was percussion that you started with. That was my love, yeah. That From the very beginning, you know, I was exposed to the drum, and I just felt it. When I uh, turned 12, that's when I went to a performing arts school to have my formal musical studies. The school, it's funny, music was a requirement. And uh, when I took the audition, everything went really well and everything. The only thing was that, unfortunately, that year, they had too many percussionists. <laughs> so, so it was a battle. What am I going to do? It was a battle because they tried to, what about oboe, which is a beautiful instrument, but, you know, 12 years old, you know, I'm like, oboe. Oh, the you sax know, was a little sexier. I was like, you know, let's do this, you know, what about the saxophone? But I have to be honest with you. I was always intending to switch. As a matter of fact, I was sitting in the percussion classes still. And it, that was not until I turned... In my second year, uh, I was almost 14, I actually paid attention to jazz for the first time. And that was a crucial moment, I guess, because that's what kind of stopped me from continue playing percussion, but not necessarily saying I'm going to switch. So listening to jazz was extremely important. Yeah, not quite ready to commit yet. Right, right. But I believe it was your sister who also introduced you to a little record shop, in Rio Piedras. It, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. That was nearby the University of Puerto Rico. My sister is like 13, 14 years older. Mm-hmm. She would listen to from Milton Nascimento to Betty Carter to Billie Holiday to Miles Davis to, uh, you know, uh, you know, Gladys Knight. You know, I mean, right, the, big, <laughs> the, the range. Mm-hmm. big range, the Beatles. So she was the first one that I recall that bringing in those recordings. And there was two in particular ones that they caught my attention. One was Lady in Satin, Billie Holiday's, Billie Holiday's last and, recording. And very uh, lush and orchestral. Lush and orchestral. And and then there was in particular one recording that I used to call it the green record because it, it was all green. It said Basic Miles. And what that was was just really a compilation. <laughs> like the generic version of Miles. You, you know, it was the a The government comp- issue Miles. <laughs> they have made a compilation of Miles Davis's career, mm. including... 
you know, a little bit of Kind of Blue, a little bit of a Birth of the Cool, a little bit of Miles Plus 19 or, or Springville, uh, I, I think it's called that recording. And that was um, unbelievable. Now that I look back, I'm like, that was an introduction for me. And that's when I first questioned, what is that? What is that sound? Is that written? Why is the sound so free, but so organized at the same time? And, you know, all that, I started questioning, and that was a turn on for me. Do you remember a particular song that was like, click? I have to say that, uh, so what? I just connected with it really fast, for whatever reason. There was another one that I'm um, that is called Miles Ahead, and uh, it's beautiful also with Gil Evans uh, being the arranger, mm-hmm. our orchestrator. And, you know, and now it's interesting. Now I'm having an epiphany while I'm talking to you. Well, I don't know why I was actually attracted to orchestral music. Well, in a I was way. thinking that with the Billie Holiday, yeah, you know, and that. But you learned that, right? I mean, that was part of your musical foundations. You were learning classical music when you were in the academy or in school. It's true. It's true. But I have to say that my passion back then and what I was listening and attracted to, they were basically was connected to roots music. Mm -hmm. It's just I can't explain that. I know why I was attracted to that all the time. But aside of that, these actually, for being the first time me being exposed to that, I was like, Wow, what what is that sound? Sounds so mysterious, yet like you feel like you're in a movie, like he's telling you a story. You said, you know, you were so attracted to Roots music, you know, the percussion. The percussion is the rhythm section. You were in the horn section. Right. But do you play the saxophone with percussion in mind, do you think? I think so. Yeah, you know, that's and, something and, I would and, say. And, and I, honestly, I never thought about it much you know like in in, an intellectual way but uh but but when i reflect and i go back it's like wow you know now i get it now i understand why i reacted the way i reacted when i first heard charlie parker and when i first heard especially sonny rollins because tenor saxophone at that time was playing tenor uh, you know always been my main instrument so when i heard sonny rollins playing inside i had from within Something clicked and said, oh, yeah, you don't necessarily have to be playing percussion to play percussion. You could play in a percussive way, and it feels like the drum is present when you're playing. Wow, that was the music that Dizzy Gillespie, very early in his career, was attracted to. Uh, This is his song, Mantica. Later, not too many years later, you toured with Dizzy Gillespie and his United Nations band and the South African singer-songwriter Miriam Makeba. But first, Rutgers University. You went there in the late 80s with a music scholarship that really jump-started your career, and you were all around the jazz scene then. Who, who were you talking to, listening to, and playing with at that time? Another father figure to me, the iconic Eddie Palmieri. Ah, oh, great. <laughs> How it happened really was I was in Puerto Rico and I was in my last year, I was getting ready to go to Rutgers University to study. I was a transfer student from the, uh, the University of Puerto Rico. 
What happens is this friend of mine, a great musician, great trumpet player, Charlie Sepulveda, asked me to play with Eddie Palmieri in, uh, I think it was December. And they had like a few concerts. And then I played with Eddie and uh, everything if somehow, some way, you know, when you connect, you just connect and you don't know how to explain it. Things were flowing. When I moved to, to New Jersey, just barely four or five months later, they found out I was there and Eddie, I started playing with Eddie Palmieri. Amazing. That was 89. I mean, so, this, at that time, so was, this man is like one of the great <laughs> stars of this music, a fantastic pianist, an unbelievably effusively uh, um, joyful kind of character. Too. Yes, indeed. And so influential. I learned so, so much from that experience. And I had the chance, we had a double bill with Miles Davis. This is like the only time that I had, I was able to meet Miles Davis, you know, in person, like in the same dressing room and everything. And for me, it was astonishing because, you know, I'm a kid. And I just barely made it, you know, in, in, in school and at Rutgers. And honestly, the, I didn't have no uh, uh, expectation. You know, like I just wanted to learn more about jazz, you know, this thing that I heard in Puerto Rico. And, and I wanted to furthermore be in, in touch with it. And all of a sudden, I'm meeting Miles Davis. Uh, at D.C. Gillespie, we were crossing paths, you know, the United Nations Orchestra and D.C. and, and Eddie's band. And that's how it led the path into into uh into D.C. Gillespie. And uh, when I got the call, I don't need to tell you, that was back when, you know, you, they, they, you had the answering machine. And I remember I played that message probably, I don't know. Man, like you wore that tape out. <laughs> I can't believe this. And I, I was afraid. Should I call? You know, like, you know. So I finally called the management. And yeah, it was a tour with Miriam Akiba. And that was unbelievable. My guest is David Sanchez, a saxophonist and now artist-in-residence at the Jazz Studies Program at Georgia State University School of Music. When we come back, we'll explore more of his musical trek across the world and his new album, Carib. You're listening to Fernando's theme from that album, but stay tuned. On Second Thought, we'll be right back. I'm Virginia Prescott. My guest is the Atlanta-based saxophonist David Sanchez. He's artist-in-residence in the Jazz Studies program at Georgia State University School of Music. And we're talking about his career and also want to get to his new album, Carib, which is part of a much larger project about exploring the music of the African diaspora, beginning in the Caribbean islands. I think he's got much further to go. But this is a track from the new album. It's called Madigra. I'm going to leave you back in the 1980s or whatever, <laughs> the, the, the mid-80s, move on to what you're doing now and what brought you here. So you are from Puerto Rico, of course, Caribbean island. You know, we've got the whole Afro-Cuban tradition there and Haitian music. There's a specific connection to the music of Haiti on this record. What's going on there? There's uh, something I already, back a few years, have been listening to music from Haiti. And, and let me just point something out. 
usually people have tendency to think that it's Afro-Cuban. And I guess it's because of the market, you know, the, the commercialization and the marketing, that mysticism of Cuba, you know, the embargo. And it's just, it's just a nice story. You know, it's so hard to read. It is a much and, harder story, isn't it? Exactly. Right. And we all have our own Afro-Puerto Rican music like Bomba. And that was essential for me to connect with Haiti, especially Congo Guinea. Uh, which is a cycle. I chose Haiti because to me, in my book, Haiti probably was the first embargo of the America, not Cuba. Because once, you know, you start, think about it, 1803, and you have all that going on, they managed to have emancipation. The rebellion the against rebellion the rebellion again. And not only that, but then they facing that now all of a sudden they have to pay reparations just to be free. That, that all alone is crazy, but I won't get into it. But but then on top of that, then you have the order between all those countries, you know, European countries, the Dutch, the English, the Spaniards, the, the Portuguese, just Haiti, we don't have nothing to do with it. And we don't want it their the influence. Exactly. Yeah. So somehow, some way, because of that they didn't have the same cultural vacuum like we had in the other islands or in the throughout the Americas in the diaspora. So their story is just uh, it's an amazing narrative. It's also a very misunderstood culture for a long, 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 long time. And that's why the reason I wanted to start Carib, which is a tribute, basically it's a, a series of albums that I'm going to make that are really paying tribute to uh, the different Afro-descendants and communities throughout the Americas. All right, so you mentioned that a lot of people do know the Afro-Caribbean music. I mean, that's been very well exposed. Less well, probably, the rara music or, or the popular music of, you know, the carnival music. Maybe we hear it uh, a little bit, but not digging deep into it. You are digging deeply into it. You know, this communities descended from Africa, your own Afro-Caribbean culture. So what is it that you're trying to expose people to or understand for yourself about that connection? That's a great question. It's a, you know, remember, we, you know, our ancestors were sometimes split, you know, basically took apart from each right. other. So the only way sometimes of getting the, to the bottom was I mean, what? I know I wasn't taught this the right way. Nobody did. Nobody cared. So how am I going to get to the bottom? It's like almost like a, you have a puzzle. And you have to just kind of like, this piece goes with this. But, you know, this folklore and this particular tradition, musical tradition, for instance, in Puerto Rico, this way of singing, we were not exposed to it. My curiosity is like, I wonder how really it was before it got diluted with something else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And for before me, it became synthesized. And synthesized and yeah. Exactly. So for me, that's a part of my search. And yeah. also show the correlations between all these Afro-descendant cultures, including the United States, New Orleans, Georgia, Sea Islands, uh, South Carolina, you know, like they, they have Congo in them, too. In, and, and you hear it in Palenque, you know, in San Basilio Palenque in Colombia. You hear it. I just got back from Dominican Republic. And, I, you know, I, all these Afro-descendant communities being in New Orleans in some places and I see the black Indians playing the way they play in Congo Square. I'm like... I want to show a correlation, not only in the music, but when it comes to uh, the correlation that there is also in a socioculturally speaking. You mean how these cultures were treated? Treated or, and still or how they, are. Yeah. 
you know, it's, some of them don't have water, you know, all the time, electricity, sanitation, forget about it. You know, I mean, that's the point I'm trying to make. It's like, wow, we often celebrate and feel proud about how we are as a culture and what are we supposed to be musically and what we are all about as a culture in general. And that seems to be a fundamental part. But then when it comes down to social equality, it's, it's not. It's <laughs> an interesting paradox. So, so, so that's my point. Well, I'll, okay. So the, another interesting sort of outgrowth there is uh, another thing that binds them together besides bringing these rhythms is the kind of whole belief system. You know, many of them, you're talking about Catholic countries, Catholic cultures that adapted Catholic saints onto West African, for the most part, kind of belief systems. So do you feel like that is part of what holds them together, too? Syncretism is one of the things, I would say. I think it's just that reflective, beyond religion, is the reflective mindset. You know, it's funny, you know, my, my, uh, this residency I just did in Palenque, San Basilio Palenque, I was committed to not only write music, but also exchange and interact with the community. And we wound up recording one track, and I decided to go with the the tradition of Lumbalu. Lumbalu is a reflective, it's used for funerals. You know, it's basically to, to, to say bye, but at the same time it's bigger than that. It's that. There's a bigger picture. You're thinking of the ancestors and where you came from. It's a reflective kind of thing. So there's a parallel between that and um, Belen in Puerto Rico and, uh, and, and other cultures, they call it different ways, you know, but it's exactly the same thing. Candomblé, Candomblé and Voodoo. And, and, mm. and Juba. And Juba, I use Juba a lot in this recording also because the Juba, if you go to Congo Square, you see the slaves were permitted to play the drums and gather on Sundays and they played rhythms like Bambula, Juba and Kalinda. We have exactly the same rhythms. It comes from the Creole in Puerto Rico. They have them in Haiti. They have them in Martinique. They have them in Trinidad. They have them in Guadalupe, Dominican Republic, and Palenque. It's unbelievable. So tell me about this residency. What are you, what are you doing in that? Is that tying together with all of this traveling? Yes, yes, that's, uh, you know, all, all in agenda. I'm committed to, it started, first of all, it's a position that started last year. and But this year is the first, this semester is going to be the first one that we start in some of the new courses in composition, especially, but also it's an ensemble that's going to devote itself to write music in and roots music pan-african the students specific. will write music yes ah, yeah but okay. but but not a, it's not a conventional composition class because this class would will all also perform their own compositions mm-hmm. sort of be like a, a a composer's workshop let's call it that way but it focused on uh, not only in pan-african music but it's going to have to to uh, in the first semester is a little more conventional composition, and then the second semester we moved on to into um, a Pan African cultures and roots music and stuff like that. So carrying the spirituality and carrying the music at the same time, which I guess is what you responded to on some very deep level. But how? You know, okay, so you're making records out of this, right? Karib is the first. You're going to yeah, do a series the of these. But how do you make um, this music that isn't? You know, an anthropology lesson. <laughs> I don't know. Right, Do you right. know what I'm saying? <laughs> right, 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 right. No, no, exactly, you're exactly right. You know, for me, the process doing this recording was a little bit different, I would say, uh, than other ones, but totally uh, away from the saying writing. 
you know, mm -hmm. music. I was mm -hmm. just basically with my horn and the piano, and and everything was sort of like a song. You know, I was approaching everything like I'm singing. But of course, coming from the perspective of some of this traditional cadence of these rhythms, and most importantly, being mindful about that rhythm, not rhythm per se of rhythm, the, of the playing an instrument, you know, like that, but the rhythm of life and of these different communities and having that very present in me. And that's how I make it non-intellectual, just following the cadence of the rhythm. You know, when you made these connections between the kind of folk music, quote unquote, uh, in Dominican Republic and Colombia and Haiti and Puerto Rico, what is your own reflection? My own reflection, I would say, is that song, you know, that the cadence of that song that sometimes is happy, sometimes is sad. Those are feelings, of course, that I'm describing because that's what I feel when I hear it. And that's how I'm reacting to really it's just it just puts me in a trance where I'm not thinking a lot but yet I'm feeling comfort I feel comfort like hmm we are this we are part of this you know it's not like nobody owns anything but we are this being very grateful to the people who came before you I would say that to me is what really gets me and that's how I process the music. It's funny because, you know, I told you before I went to a performing arts school and, you know, we were taught about analyzing stuff, but I never, I try not to lose contact with me, the listener. And nowadays it's really hard to really listen. It's so much going on. It's so much noise. Everything is so fast and you have to go to the next task and we don't even have time to listen. Listening is, is, is a challenge. If we only give the time to listen and without nothing else but listening, then maybe we get into something and we, maybe we feel something we never felt before. All right, let's pause to listen. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That is Grammy-winning jazz saxophonist David Sanchez, who now lives in Atlanta and is artist-in-residence at Georgia Tech. You're listening to 1,000 Yesterdays from his album, Carib, as we take the last gasp for our September Palooza month of music here on GBB. GBB. 